Sup, I'm Laura Kuzno, and welcome to Just a Music Podcast, where I, Laura Kuzno, tell you about some music history, how it relates to the world around us, and hopefully introduce you to some new tunes. This show is theoretically for everyone, but I will swear when it comes down to it, and sometimes we may need to talk about some sensitive topics, so your weans might want to sit this one out. And boy, unless you've had that talk with your kids about uh, systematic racism, uh, you might want to let them sit this one out, because we're going to be touching on a bunch of terrible racist shit this week, because we're going to be talking about the blues and various different types of blues musics. Um, I'm actually really excited to talk about it, too, because uh, blues, as you guys will, guys will find out it, in the future, is kind of the basis for uh, a lot of other what one might consider modern genres of American popular music. So this one's going to be important for your ear holes and your brain holes. And just like last time, it will be airing a sensitive content warning for some graphic descriptions of violence, and it will put timestamps in the description for y'all for when it starts and ends. First, though, I want to issue an apology for being away for so long. Um, I tend to work on this podcast in my free time, and currently I have had none of that whatsoever. Uh, It just so happened that October worked out this year that it was uh, Thanksgiving, and then my birthday, and then a bunch of big projects uh, that I had to do, and then Halloween, and now I'm working on my fucking thesis proposal for my master's. Um, I'm actually recording this episode at like 1.35am on a Saturday night, technically Sunday morning, Uh, so needless to say, uh, all this in combination with trying to deal with my depression hasn't been a cakewalk, but we're making it work. So I will likely run up against a similar time issue during the first couple weeks of December, because that's when all my final papers are due, but uh, after that I should have some smooth sailing for about a month over the holiday, so I'll try to get at least two episodes out. But yeah, so I I didn't exactly have a ton of time to... uh, to make an episode this week, but, uh, I think everybody needs it. Uh, I mean, the American election took place this week, you know, and, uh, understandably people were stressed as hell. I mean, I was stressed as hell even as a Canadian. So, uh, I think we could all use a little bit of music right now. So that's what we're going to do. Okay. So, uh, all the fucking things we need to know, uh, about blues and where blues came from all these blues things. So blues is actually a lot older than a lot of people are going to think. So, like, it's it's really damn old. Like, pretty much everything in academia, and I mean everything, at least in the humanities, uh, dates are contested. But it seems that the blues, or at least what begins as, as the blues, starts in around the 1860s. For those who didn't listen to last week's episode, or last time's episode, I guess, on slave songs, spirituals, and gospel, or just those who don't know American history too, too well, the 1860s marks a very important time for black people, many of which at the time had been enslaved, because in 1865, the 13th Amendment was amended into the American Constitution. For those who aren't aware, the 13th Amendment, as stated by the National Archives of the United States of America, reads as such. So, quote, Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as punishment for crime, whereof the party shall shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction." Now this of course was fantastic news, Uh, and for some people this might be where you think oppression in America ends for black people, but uh, you would be incredibly wrong. Because uh, this is the period where we see the start of a phenomenon referred to as sharecropping. Sharecropping, or crop-sharing, as it's known otherwise, is considered a part of what we historians sometimes- We historians, I guess I'm a historian. uh, What we historians sometimes refer to as the Jim Crow economy of the American South after the Civil War. But what is Jim Crow economy? And where where did it come from? What did it come from? Why is it bad? Why is sharecropping bad? And does any of this relate- How does any of this relate to the blues? Well, luckily for uh, you guys, for you little turnips, I'm gonna tell ya. So, um, Jim Crow culture is something that I imagine most North Americans will have even the most basic knowledge of, but for those that don't, the name Jim Crow, as applied to the economy, laws, and any other part of American culture during these times, refers to a set of crazy fucking racist laws, written and unwritten, that kept black people subjugated under the whims of the government as well as their fellow white countrymen. The term Jim Crow itself refers to a song often uh, featured in supremely racist minstrel shows of uh, the mid to late 1800s and early 1900s, referred to as uh, Jump Jim Crow, in which a white man in blackface sings in a parody-centric dialect about the life of a caricaturishly uneducated backwoodsy black man named, you fucking guessed it, Jim Crow. The significance of uh, the crow being that it was a pejorative term for black individuals, which can be actually dated back to the mid-1700s. So if you ever hear somebody using crow to refer to a black person, that's some really old-timey racism. Um, Now, I want to preface the excerpt of the song that I'm going to play with the fact that I am very uncomfortable listening to it. Um, I understand if others are, too. 
The thing is, is that acknowledging these uncomfortable things and knowing about them is necessary in order to understand the type of historical impact that they had. So, Laura, you must obviously support statues being raised to commemorate things like slavery and secessionism. And, uh, absolutely not. Def no, I don't. I really don't. So, where statues and monuments exist to praise the efforts of individuals, the listening to and learning about songs in a teaching context like this very podcast are meant to educate. Statues commemorating culture surrounding one of the worst atrocities to have taken place on American soil should never have been erected in the first place, let alone celebrated. One is meant to celebrate, while the other is meant to educate. Because one is a historical primary source, the song, that lets us think critically about the history, and the other is a tertiary celebration, the statue. So, the purpose of listening to a clip like this is then to educate and understand a piece of actual history, not to replicate and enjoy it. The version of the song that I have is sung without the caricaturish accent, but uses the original words. But with all that in mind, here's a bit of the clip of Jump Jim Crow. I come from old Kentucky a long time ago, where I first learned to wheel about about and turn about and do just so every time i wheel about i jump jim crow i used to take him fiddle every morning afternoon and charm the old buzzard and dance to the raccoon wheel about and turn about and do just so every time i wheel about i jump jim crow In terms of laws, I'm sure just about everybody knows about the separate drinking fountains in schools, but this really permeated pretty much every sphere of, of life for black peoples, especially those in the South. Uh, I say those especially in the South because not ex it wasn't exclusively people in the South, because racial segregation, although not supported by law but more socially, still existed in the northern states as well as in Canada. Anecdotally speaking, my mother grew up in a suburb of Cleveland, Ohio, so she remembers going into Cleveland when she was a kid, when Cleveland was still a very racially segregated city. Uh, black people lived in, shopped in, and attended schools in certain areas of the city, and white people in others. My grandmother, who was also raved in the area, even remembers black people having separate lunch counters when she was young. And yeah, so like it, it, it definitely still existed in the North. And to some degree, depending on where you live, it, it also still does. But we'll get more into that later. So it might also be handy when I mention the South um, to actually talk about what the South is and particularly the Deep South, because for a lot of y'all outside America, um, you probably don't actually know what consists of the South. So when we talk about the South, we are talking about a geographically bounded area, just not the area that one might think of by looking at a map. Because uh, where you might be thinking like, ah, we'll just take the country and cut it in half horizontally and the bottom half is the South, that wouldn't technically be correct. So for the United States Census Bureau itself, the South we're talking about is Alabama, Arkansas, Delaware, Florida, Georgia, Kentucky, Louisiana, Maryland, Mississippi, North and South Carolina, Oklahoma, Tennessee, Texas, Virginia, and West Virginia. Now, some of those who live in the surrounding areas, such as, like, Kansas, might consider themselves as being from the South somewhat culturally, but uh, those states previously listed are the technically official ones. When we talk about the Deep South, however, uh, that range closes a lot more. So that would just be Georgia, Alabama, South Carolina, Mississippi, Louisiana, and sometimes Texas or Florida due to their involvement as part of the Confederate States of America, meaning the states that were on the South side of the Civil War. Also briefly, just so we're clear, uh, again, this is for people who didn't receive the best education on slavery and the Civil War in general, but to be clear, the Civil War was fought uh, over primarily states' rights to use and perpetuate slavery. The common narrative that you hear in a lot of protests by those on the right who would like to uphold the institution set out by their forefathers in the celebration of the Abominable Act is that so the Civil War is primarily fought over just states' rights. What they then so often forget to elaborate is that those rights were perceived as the right to govern themselves independently so that they may still be able to employ slave labor in the operation of their economic economic states and also to ex expand further westward to continue to be able to use slavery out in those areas as well. So, line in the sand. <laughs> the Civil War is about slavery. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. If anybody tries to tell you otherwise, refer them to this podcast and or a great book about American history. <laughs> 
Um, the reason we hear about these Jim Crow laws, particularly in the South then, is because where the northern states in Canada did have and still continues to have some very violent racist issues, the Jim Crow South was specifically very bad. And I mean fucking abominable. Um, the black people were free from being directly owned. Society at large and all its trappings found new ways to oppress them. So this started with the black codes, quote-unquote, which were individual state law codes that dictated where black people could freely move, for how long they could stay there, restricted their rights to vote. Uh, and when I mean rights to vote, I mean specifically black men, because black women wouldn't be able to vote until the mid-1900s. Um, it often made it extremely difficult to vote via poll taxes or literacy tests, seeing as black men were most likely to be uh, undereducated in terms of literacy just due to segregated schools and what have you, um, as well as where they could work, and in some cases if their children could be taken away from them on the basis of labor needs. So that's uh, that's all shitty. Um, so I can't really like drive home the point of uh, how much life sucked for black people under Jim Crow laws and economy in the southern states. To call it any less than abominable would seem to understate it in a major way. Um, in the 1880s, Jim Crow laws hadn't actually started to be rolled into su large southern cities yet, so many black peoples were inclined to move there because life was actually slightly easier for a short period of time, but after that it just, you know, it just sucked. So white people being offended and upset at this, of, of black people moving into their cities because how dare a black person just try to live their lives in my good white pure Christian neighborhood? then fully supported Jim Crow laws being rolled out to remove them from areas where white people would normally interact with them. This includes, but was not limited to, barring them from public parks entirely, having entirely different theaters at one point, and then segregated theaters after a while with separate entrances based on your race, um, restaurants, uh, bus and train stations, water fountains, uh, restrooms, most public entrances into buildings had a black entrance, which, I mean, that's just... Like, if you just think of the inanity of that, it's just stupid. Um, elevators, uh, so, like, either they wouldn't be allowed to use elevators or they might have a separate elevator, but the separate elevator was very uncommon, so usually you just have to walk upstairs. Um, amusement park ticket windows, which I found very weird. Um, public schools, uh, phone booths, hospitals, asylums, jails, elderly care homes, and even fucking cemeteries. <laughs> so even when you're die, even when, even when you die dead, even when you're dead in the ground, you are not free of racism. So that's... Yeah, that, it's, it's fucking stupid. Um, of course, being treated as a diseased subhuman parasite is never enough for the racism machine that is the public consciousness at this time. So there was also a lot of violence, um, both systemic and grassroots, that accompanied this area. And um, this is where I'm going to have to issue a sensitive content warning because I'm about to s describe some truly heinous shit in a whole second. So uh, just take a moment. So by violence, I mean very public and very culturally accepted violence, similar to what we're seeing more and more of in the States again with, you know, um, the shooting of unarmed black people. Uh, as many of you will know, in the light of the many, many, many police shootings of unarmed, un un unthreatening uh, black people in the States, uh, the police traditionally haven't been on the side of black citizens. So this is due to a number of reasons. Uh, for one, on the most basic of levels, the police serve to protect the interests of those in power. In our case, that means the property and lives of the upper middle class, mostly white Americans. The natural extension of this is that um, many police forces in the states, especially in the southern states, started out as a slave-catching force, bringing back runaway enslaved people to their owners. So, as time progressed and black peoples became a free, quote-unquote, free population, because they weren't that free, we're going to talk about that in a minute, uh, quote-unquote, free population, this still meant protecting mainly middle to upper class white people from the threat of black people. This was enforced in a number of ways, such as arresting black individuals found to be breaking uh, these rules, or th the rules essentially set out by the society at large. They didn't necessarily have to be laws, just any rules that they deemed that black people should follow. Uh, framing black people for crimes committed by others and arresting them to suppress their populations. Um, turning a blind eye to the grassroots violence perpetuated by non-black citizens, which very often were by white citizens. Um, so, an exi so, I mean, an example, if you want an example, an example of just straight-up police brutality can be found in the case of Isaac Woodard Jr., who was viciously beaten by police only hours after being honorably discharged from the fucking military. So, that's, this was on February 12, 1946. Uh, the bus driver driving Woodard and some of his fellow soldiers called the police after Woodard asked the bus driver if there might be time for him to use the restroom as they approached, approached a rest stop. So that's, you know, just, the guy needs to pee. It's a simple fucking thing. So the driver calls the police. When the police arrive, the bus driver accused Woodard of drinking in the back of the bus 
with his buddies and he was hauled off, dragged into an alley and beaten with nightsticks. That night he was thrown in, in the town jail. By the morning he had been beaten so severely that he, he was left permanently blind in both eyes. Just for asking if he could take a piss. <laughs> um, and that grassroots, the, the grassroots violence is still, it's just as nasty. It's really fucking nasty. So the violence uh, could be uh, perpetrated for things as small as being in the wrong place at the wrong time, which unfortunately happened a lot. Entering a white neighborhood, quote unquote, talking back to the wrong person, e.g. a white person. Um, and since black men have always been and are still are to some degree subject to the stereotype that they are all sex incensed monsters, being left alone in a room with a white woman could be enough to incite violence against them as well. So in the Mississippi Delta, during uh, the season where sharecropping debts were settled up, there was a sharp uptick in violence and the killing of black people especially. If you were white, because let's be real here, there were definitely some white people on the side of their oppressed countrymen, as there are in any situation, like a situation is never as black and white as you want it to be. Um, you could be hung on the basis for being uh, considered a quote-unquote n-word lover. I'm not going to use the word because I'm white as hell and that's just not right. But you could be you could be hung on the basis of being a quote-unquote n-word lover, which could range from uh, being found to be in a rom romantic or sexual relationship with a person of color to just being their fucking friend. <laughs> Which is not great. So, uh, the violence was often uh, varied too, where kidnapping and hanging people, either with or without brutalizing them first, also known as lynching, is the form most commonly associated with Jim Crow era violence, less extreme but still horrible harassment could perpetuate in any form. So, Mississippi had the highest amount of lynchings um, from 1882 to, eight, or to 1968. With 581, and you might think you might think this is a low number at first, but similarly to when we were talking about slavery in the last episode, one lynching is too fucking many, and secondly, there are only uh, these are only the ones that were officially recorded. Since lynchings didn't happen in, or didn't always happen, I mean sometimes they did, but that because they didn't always happen in broad daylight, and uh, since law enforcement really didn't care about black individuals, there they were almost certainly more that happened that were just never recorded. So Georgia is the second high, highest with uh, 531 of them, and Texas is third with 493 of them. 79% of lynchings happened in the South. So as I said before, uh, lynching was not the only form, though, um, of, of violence. Beatings were also entirely all too common forms of violence perpetuated against black people to make them scared and thus more compliant with the laws and rules set out by white society. So a good example of this is the, is the case of Emmett Till. Um, a 14-year-old boy who made the mistake of playfully flirting with a white woman, who was beaten nearly to death, had one of his eyes gouged out, and was shot in the head and then tied to a cotton mill equipment before uh, being thrown in the river, where he then died and drowned. Well, drowned and died. Um, this wasn't even that long ago. The, the beating happened on the 28th of August in uh, 1955. My mom was only born a few short years after that. So this is these are things that, you know, like, this is the legacy. This is the like the, this is when we talk about you know like black people still facing racism in the states is because like things this horrific didn't happen that long ago and things this horrific are still happening now so just keep that in mind not to politicize but to in entirely politicize keep that in mind um, so the next parts are also not going to be great but we won't have any more descriptions of graphic violence so I'm going to call an ending to the sensitive content warning here so welcome back to you who weren't here. Um, so then how does sharecropping play into all of this and what does it have to do with the blues? We're, we're getting there. We're getting there, I promise. So as I explained previously, um, sharecropping was a part of the Jim Crow economic era. It was a part of the era of reconstruction, meaning the period of rebuilding after the Civil War. How it worked was, let's say for a second, you come with me to the theater of the mind for a second, take a seat, close your eyes, take a deep breath. Okay, so let's imagine that you're uh, a farmer in the South. Uh, the Civil War has kind of left you in a shitty spot. If you're black, you're starting off without an awful lot. You don't have any generational wealth at all. Uh, you don't have any property, likely aside from maybe a relatively small plot of land, but that was extremely uncommon. You probably didn't have much of any equipment because that would have been way too expensive. And the land that you may have had may have been of shitty quality with like lots of, lots of rocks and stones and big old sticks and just shit that you can't farm around, you know? So what could you do to earn yourself a living? Well, you had to go to a landowner and ask him rather kindly uh, if you might be able to work the land that they lived on in exchange for some of the profits of the crops that you would produce. The landowner would provide you with the tools, seed, housing, land, store credits at local shops in order to buy stuff and subsist, subsist off of during the growing season and other supplies and sometimes maybe a mule uh, in order to help you work the land, seeing as motorized machinery was still few and far between, especially in the early Reconstruction era in the United States. 
So the issue of the system is that how much you receive for your labor, though, uh, that cut that you actually get from selling the crops that you grew with your own backbreaking labor is uh, more or less decided by your landowner. So, and as I mentioned in the last episode, uh, those of you who've ever had to rely on the benevolence of a boss for any period of time know that that shit ain't gonna cut it. So often you would end up underpaid, underfed, and in a debt hole that lasted as long as you did, if not longer. If it sounds like legal slavery, that's kind of because it was. It, it really was just an extension of the slavery system. You had all these white landowners that were just, you know, owning the labor of black people, and, you know, it just wasn't great. So you would basically remain in indentured servitude to the landowner for as long as you were a part of the system. Um, like, don't get me wrong, there were, there were people who managed to not be a part of it, but it was an incredibly large-scale problem, so it, it's the majority of people were living like this. Uh, it's important to note, though, that this wasn't just a black phenomenon either. White tenants of sharecroppers existed in incredibly large numbers as well. By 1900, 36% of all white farmers in Mississippi were either tenant farmers or sharecroppers. Uh, by comparison, 85% though of all black farmers in the 1900 did not own land did not own the land that they farmed. So when like the reason I'm talking about it as, as mainly a black problem is because it was much more centrically a, a black problem. Um, this all sucks for various reasons, partially because there, there, there was this whole, like, there, there was this whole plan after the war that, um, all the land that had been seized by slave owners, uh, could have been divvied up, uh, to the newly freed slave populations. Like, this was actually a thing that was in the works. It was colloquially known as the 40 acres and a mule plan, because they were going to give everybody 40 acres and a mule. Um, but unfortunately that never fucking happened because Andrew Johnson, uh, the president was like, well, actually, Sweaty, uh, I think the land should go back to the slave owners because, um, uh, it's, a, it's a good idea. And, and then that's what he did. And then we end up with sharecropping and everything was terrible for a very long time. So thanks, Andrew Johnson. That was uh, real nice of you. <laughs> but anyway, that's sharecropping. And, and of course, I could go on to describe how all of this still affects black people in the United States and how the effects of system, systemic racism are still being felt generations later. But we're going to save that for a different episode. For now, though, why this is all important, why did I take roughly 3,000 words to tell you guys about the horrors of the Reconstruction itself? Well, because we're talking about the blues. And what does it mean when you have the blues? It means that you're sad as hell. And given everything that I've just described to you, is it no wonder that the blues emerged as like the soundtrack for the lives that these people lived? Not necessarily surprising, eh? So then what is the blues? Well, as I mentioned last time, the blues kind of sort of develops out of the field hauler and spiritual tradition. A fair amount of field haulers, a type of work song that enslaved peoples uh, would sing in the fields while they were doing their work, were about regular ass things for regular ass people. So, this dude stole my girl, I'm gonna find me a girl to love. Life sucks, so I'm gonna sing about it. Life doesn't suck, and I'm still gonna sing about it. So these types of things. Uh, blues tended to explore more of these things, but related to the sadder points uh, of these stories, but in similar ways and styles. So where did blues come from specifically? What makes it a different genre than a field hall or spiritual? And those are all great questions, so let's get into it. So let's say for a second that you went through a really shitty period in your life. Like, uh, your significant other Steve dumped you. Your pet armadillo, also named Steve, died. Your mom, also coincidentally named Steve, has taken away your showering privileges. Like, you've forgotten how to speak your native language. And to top it all off, you just burnt your goddamn mac and cheese. So you spiral into a deep situational depression that lasts for a long time. Uh, during this time, you listen to one album on repeat just over and over and over and over and over and over, and over again. Uh, you know it all inside out and backwards and diagonal. You know every instrument part by heart. Uh, you've even got the lyrics tattooed on your ass the whole nine yards. Eventually, you start working your way out of it. Uh, slowly and steadily, the days start getting a little brighter. You move out of your abusive mother's house. You find a new partner or get comfortable being alone. You appropriately mourn the loss of your pet armadillo. Hell, you even, uh, you know, learn to make a better mac and cheese. So, you know, things aren't all fixed. Life isn't breezes and cakes, but it, it does get ever so slightly easier. Uh, at least you have your freedom, right? That's something. But now every time you listen to one of those songs from the album before, it mentally brings you back to the way things used to be, and it's not great. So that's kind of what happened to blues music. But, you know, infinitely worse. Uh, essentially, black people wanted a new sound to accompany this new life, and so they fucking made it, and it's great. The similarities of uh, blues music to field haulers and spirituals are relatively easy enough to hear if you know where to look, which isn't really surprising given that the blues is an evolution of it. For example, the basic structure stayed pretty much the same, so simple rhyming schemes, simple harmonies, melismatic vocal structures and places, and many times the lyrics uh, were often very similar to those forms before them. 
but uh, it goes even further than that. So most of the early blues melodies were directly derived from you know spiritual predecessors. So for some comparison, I'm going to play some songs. Uh, one is going to be a field holler, one is going to be a spiritual, and then the last one is going to be a blues song. But before that, <laughs> I'm going to fucking go off for a whole second because while I was researching this goddamn fucking episode, I was trying to find a good audio clip to use. And let me tell you, man, you wouldn't think that spirituals and fucking even exist inside the Library of Congress with how little of them there are because apparently they have a goddamn stranglehold on all the black spirituals ever recorded by the Lomaxes. So the thing is, is that the fucking copyright, at least in the States, is supposed to run out 75 years after the death of the recorder, uh, or the fucking owner of the rights or whoever, which it certainly has for Alan Lomax, but no, I, I had to nearly purchase a goddamn CD in order to get you guys a fucking accurate representation of the music, uh, that came out like a hundred years ago. It came out like a hundred, it's not like I'm trying to get fucking Beyonce's new releases. This, 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 this music, this music is older than your great-grandma. Like, I shouldn't, I shouldn't have to pay for it. It should be common, it should be common stuff. But, uh, yeah. So yeah, I just I was angry. So to be clear though, to be clear though, I don't I don't buy anything for this podcast other than my recording equipment. So like, you know, that's why I don't run ads because I hate ads. But uh, but man, researching this podcast is is just it's big Joe Bauer sometimes. God just keeps fucking testing me, and there's nothing I can do about it. Just slap my ass and call me a pickle. Okay, rage is over. So time for the songs. Well, you said you're gonna leave me. You said you're gonna wait. Girl, you said you're gonna leave me. You said you're gonna wait. It'll be all right, you'll come back home someday. I step four foot five and I started breaking wrong. I step four foot five and I started breaking wrong. Any man I run the counter on, same as a gadget gun. I love that woman, I just can't help myself. I love that woman, I just can't help myself. If I don't get free, I don't want nobody populations wanted a new music, a music that fit their current situation better, that didn't rely on the imagery of the past in order to get across the situation that they were in. And so that's what blues did. It was a new sound for a new era, and even more importantly, it was a sound entirely of their own. 
Whereas field haulers and various other types of music sung by enslaved peoples were, by definition, their invention, many of them still borrowed heavily from the dominant cultures of their oppressors. And so in creating blues, what they had was something that they could 100% call their own. And even if they didn't own the land that they lived on and worked on and had, f- and had few rights to the crops that they sowed and reaped, they at least had the blues. And that's pretty fucking beautiful, if you ask me. Uh, but when does it become a thing? Like, when does blues start becoming a thing? Uh, and that's that's the hard part. So, like, any cultural phenomenon, it's it's hard to fucking say. Um, and there's some accounts that say, like, 1865? Like, the fucking, the second the Civil War ended? Um, but there's some that attribute it to the 1920s. More sources I've looked at put it at around, like, 1890, or 1890 to 1910. So, when I did say the 1860s before, that's the earliest, earliest, earliest traces, but when we get it as, like, an actual genre, it's starting around 1890 and 1910. So, it originates, unsurprisingly, in it around the Mississippi Delta region and East Texas region, where you have a lot of farmland, and thus a lot of poor folk just trying to scratch out a living for themselves. And so, the blues becomes a thing, and it's cool as hell, and develops in many different ways, and I'm sorry that we're not going to get enough time to look at every subgenre of blues today, but we're going to look at least three of them. Three of the big, big regions or subgenres of blues. So blues, first of all, have all those things that I mentioned before. The simple rhyming schemes like ABAB or ABCC. Um, simple harmonies, uh, call and response is definitely a thing that still happens uh, in the specific style, but then they also have blues notes. So for those who missed the last episode, blues notes are notes within a standard scale that are bent. Or at least that's how they're initially described, is just, they're they're bent. Like, if you take a freaking piece of metal and you just hit it against a wall and you get, they're just bent. Um, So these notes are lowered by a semitone, making their overall color of the sound a bit darker and more, uh, I guess, emotional, sad. Like, we ascribe ascribe emotions to the way things sound, and the the ones that we ascribe might be Western-centric. I'm actually not entirely sure. I'm going to have to look into it later. But for Western listeners, uh, we're going to read the emotion that these notes make as sad. The notes that specifically are lowered are the third, the fifth, and the seventh degrees of the scale. I'm going to play you guys an example of a blues scale here in just a second, but the guy playing the example is only using the pentatonic version of the scale, meaning five notes of it. So that'll just be right here. So we have the minor pentatonic. And then we have the blues scale. I'll play a little example of each one so you can really hear the difference. So first of all is the minor pentatonic. And as I said, this has a very clean and simple sound. So that was the minor pentatonic scale, and if we just add that one note, that flat 5, turning it into the blues scale, it can sound very different. instruments the most standard you're going to find in any blues band uh, at its most basic is one guitar and one person singing you could even make an argument that uh, just singing could be the blues if you're using a blues scale but usually there's going to be at least you know one guitar and one dude singing the rest of the instruments are going to depend on the region that you're playing from so remember the moaning thing that I mentioned last time, the moaning style of vocals? Uh, not pioneered, but uh, by but made popular by a man that went by the name of Lionel Lemon Jefferson uh, this, this song here Mm, 
Well, he falls under the uh, Mississippi, Texas style of booze, which we're going to call for the rest of the episode Texas-ippy because saying Mississippi and Texas all the time is just going to take way too long. And you guys don't need to hear Miss Mississippi that many times in one episode. So Texas-ippy is going to be the thing from now on. Uh, it differs from other styles of uh, blues in the United States for a couple of reasons, but one of them is the moaning style of vocals. In other parts of the country, the style uh, where the blues vocals function similarly to other styles of singing... Um, are different though they're kind of clear and there's no moaning so this moaning style is definitely very like geographically bound uh another cool thing that texas hippie blues also does is they incorporate a lot of metal uh into the way that they play their guitars not like the heavy screamy kind that's going to come to be my fave later but like actual metal objects so how they incorporate this uh through is through the strings of the guitar specifically causing a little extra twangy buzzing with the strings resonating, sort of like a pleasing screech when they're shifted up and down, like this. You got to move, you got to move, you got to move, child, you got to move. But one day long, get ready, you got to move. What did they use to make this sound? Well, that's, you know, just about anything small enough in metal that you could thread between the strings or hold against them while playing. So this could have been bottle caps, could have been pocket knives, could have been silverware. Remember, we're still talking about a type of music that's very much being played, you know, by people without very much money or no money at all. So you're using what you can to make it. Uh, nowadays, you can purchase Wii cylinders that you can fit onto your fingers uh, that you press up against the strings in order to create the desired effect. So in addition to this, something that's pretty regional, regional to the blues in this area is the harmonica. Um, I'm assuming you, most of you know what the harmonica is and have had it you know, used before. Or some of you may have had one. As a kid, I know up here they sell them in the dollar store, so you can literally just go and purchase a harmonica for one Canadian dollar or 75 American cents. Um, <laughs> but for those who haven't heard of it, uh, the harmonica is a squonky reed instrument that you play with your mouth. So I would tell you the physics of how this works, but fuck if I ever studied physics. So, but basically when you blow into it, it vibrates the reed uh, and makes a note depending on the holes that you blow into. And when you suck air into it, which is really cool because you can't usually play instruments, you know, sucking in and blowing out. That's not usually how that works. If you tried to fucking suck in through a saxophone, you're just, just going to have a lot of air and it's, it's going to taste like saxophone. But uh, when you suck air into it, it makes a separate sound. So you get two notes depending on the hole that you blow in, out into or suck in through. So that's pretty cool. Um, they can be very, 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 very large. I saw a hyper bass uh, harmonica the other day and I lost my mind because it just looked like a big old brick. Um, or they can be very, very, very small. Uh, and how low or how high the sound is, uh, respectively, is changed depending on the size of the harmonica. So they were invented somewhere in the early 1800s in Germany, we think, and they sound like this.
How were harmonicas introduced into blues music, though? Well, it turns out, much like some other instruments that we're going to see in a hot minute, harmonicas were used uh, very often by soldiers during the American Civil War. Even President Abraham Lincoln himself was reported to carry a harmonica with him in his coat pocket at all times and would play it as he found it comforting, quote-unquote. Um, the thing about the harmonica was that it was relatively easy to make, and it was extremely cheap to buy in comparison to other instruments at the time. Like, you know, if we're talking like... It's hard to do money conversions because there's very few good money conversion scales online. But, like, if we're talking, like, I don't know, a trumpet's, like, $10 in 1900. I don't know how accurate this is. But if a trumpet's, like, $10 in, you know, 1900, like, a harmonica might be 30 cents. So we're talking, like, crazy fucking cheap. Um, so during the Reconstruction period, as industrialization rapidized in America and harmonicas became more available and even cheaper, and previous soldiers reminisced about the songs that they had played in camps or heard in camps during the Civil War, more and more people started picking up uh, the harmonica, which was really cool. And so poor Southern Americans were able to incorporate the instrument into this new music they were developing, and it kind of sounds like this. Also, I would big time just, like, recommend uh, just watching the video for that song that I just played. The dude, dude's just sitting there legit sucking on a harmonica. Like, he's got, like, half of it in his mouth. He's just slurping on it. And, uh, that's what I call fucking dedication there, bud. <laughs> but the cool part uh, about blues from the Texas-Sippy way, I mean, all of it's cool, to be fair, but the cool part about blues from the Texas-Sippy way is that during the Great Migration, the phenomenon that I mentioned last episode, where the black southerners just started heading northwards, is that the blues travels with them, too. So just briefly, briefly on the Great Migration, remembering all the shitty stuff that I discussed earlier, uh, the lack of work, the sharecropping, lynching, and what have you, um, so because of all that, black southerners just start moving north. Uh, basically, they're like, you know, Jesus fucking Christ, everything sucks. Let's get out of here and find somewhere better to be. So the ones who can leave do leave. And about six million black Americans from the south, so like not a small population, but a very large population of black Americans from the south, head northward to where it's better. I mean, you know, there's de like, again, there's definitely racism and still Jim Crow era laws and practices up north, but it it is in a lot of ways still definitely some degree better than the south. Um, so this great migration is how Texas-Sippy blues uh, music then comes to be transplanted into Chicago and turns into Chicago blues. But Laura, you say, your hands clenched into fists at your sides. If Texas-Sippy blues is the same as the ones in Chicago, then how are they different? You cry with tears forming at the sides of your eyes. And you're right. You're right, man. If they are the same, then how are they different? Well, you gotta remember that, you know, time does funny stuff to music, uh, similarly as it does to language and just about anything else. Uh, things change over time, and things get invented over time. And time, as we're, uh, you know, moving into now, is about, you know, the 30s and 40s. The 1930s and 40s is when these things are starting to take place in great numbers. So, in the case of the Chicago Blues, we get the additives of the piano, which has been around for some time now, but people are now, you know, just being able to put into the blues music due to it becoming uh, more financially stable by moving north, and also because the piano is just becoming a little bit easier to come about. You know, you can get a used piano at a used used instrument music shop, and it doesn't cost you an arm and a leg anymore. But we also get a really cool new invention of my favorite, the electric guitar. 
So there's going to be some speculation over the invention um, of most things throughout history. For example, y'all might be familiar with the fact that Thomas Edison did not actually invent the light bulb and was a bit of a dick about things on top of it. I mean, electrocuting a whole elephant is probably not a great way to garner support. Um, so when I talk about inventors of things, unless otherwise stated, please take it with some grain of salt. Uh, but for our purposes, Paul H. Tutmark may have been the first person to invent the electric guitar when he managed. Um, by some feat of science, which I will not explain, because science is for wizards and freaks, and while I am both of those things, I am not qualified or able to explain them. But essentially, uh, Paul H. Tutmark managed to electrify Hawaiian guitar. He supposedly invented this sometime around the 1930s, and here's an example of what that sounds like. Very SpongeBobby, Sponge SpongeBob like, SpongeBob esque, Sponge SpongeBobly. But uh, either way, the electric guitar as as well as the electric bass is invented, and so those are then infused into Chicago blues music. And in some cases, you will also get the addition of drums and saxophone. But it is the electrified elements as well as the piano that really characterize the biggest difference between Chicago blues and Texas hippie blues. And overall, if you want to put all that together, it sounds like this. Something you also probably heard in there was just the level of intensity, uh, the volume, or what I'm going to call the perceived volume in the recordings. So it's, it's like the like how how loud the music sounds it could be, um, whereas the songs in the Texas Hippie Blues are a little softer, quieter, uh, very much just a dude in his guitar type volume. Chicago Blues is usually going to sound a little louder and is going to be a little more intense at times. This is due to blue, blues clubs becoming a thing during this time period, which is great. And why shouldn't they? In diaspora communities, in diaspora being communities uh, of people with similar ethnic or national backgrounds, it's an entire study of things that you can do. I did that in my undergrad. Um, you often get patterns of people settling in similar areas. So in our case, when black Americans started moving northwards, they would often settle in similar communities or move into similar communities based off of their ethnicity. After all, you're going to want to live in a place where people understand your experience. You know, you want you want your neighbor to know where you come from so they don't call the cops on you for doing things that are just normal to the way that you do things. Uh, there's also an element of racism, of course, though. Homeowners associations making it hard for black folk to move into white neighborhoods and, of course, school segregation. So if you're like anybody and want... Well, not anybody. 
but you know a lot of people um who have kids and stuff like that you need to live in neighborhoods that are going to have schools that support them and you know school segregation didn't end until like 1954 officially so it's going to happen for a while um, so while in some cases there's definitely element of wanting to feel safe in the community of people who understand you, there was also that big old element of racism, as there pretty much is when we talk about anything in history, and, you know, like, honestly, you're gonna be surprised how far fucking reaching and convoluted stupid racism is, like, even, like, especially when we get to, like, Europeans being racist against other Europeans who both, by our standards as North Americans, we would perceive as white, it's, it's gonna suck. Uh, but yeah, so since we have all these people moving north, they need to be entertained, and we all need entertainment after all, but lo and behold, they cannot go to the clubs of white people because fucking racism, unless you're a performer, in which case sometimes you can go to white clubs, but only to perform, only to perform, and I'm going to get more into that when we have our jazz episode because it's a particularly big part in jazz. Um, but we start having blues clubs because of this, and because they're a club, and there's drinking, and there's talking and whatnot, often Chicago blues songs are going to be a little louder and more rowdy to compensate for that. Um, on the other end of the country, we also have my favorite flavor of blues music, which is the New Orleans blues, and I'm definitely 100% biased when I say this, but why does everything in New Orleans just sound better? The language sounds better, the music sounds better, the food tastes better, the gators are just better. <laughs> Everything is just better. But uh, if I had to guess, it's probably the multiculturalism, and thus, you know, people bringing tons of different ideas and influences and stuff, but awesome is hard to quantify, so we're just going to leave it right there. But yeah, so we have um, Texasippi Blues that traveled down the river, the Mississippi River, to be very specific, because things very rarely travel up a river, because that's not how rivers work. But uh, because, of, because of that, it hits New Orleans. But again, if we're going to be talking about, you know, the same style of blues, then what makes it different? Well, a lot. A hell of a lot, honey. Uh, so as we talked about in our last episode of, you know, field haulers and slave musics, um, there's there's a lot of uh, different cultural elements at play in Louisiana, accommodating uh, in some really cool musical styles and, and changes. It's also absolutely something we're going to talk about when we go back uh, and do the jazz episode, because Lord knows that New Orleans jazz is just as fucking hot and dangerous. Like, uh, like really, I just I just want to go hang out with you guys. And if, any, if there's anybody listening from New Orleans, I just want to hang out with you. I just want to, like, take a tour of your state and, like, listen to music and shit. Like, we, let's just do that at some point. But anyways, I will say, though, that the line between jazz and blues uh, in Louisiana, specific specifically in the New Orleans region, does get blurry, but we're going to be talking about New Orleans blues today, so just hold on to your femurs and, and just strap in. So let's get in it. So New Orleans blues is different from other types of blues, again, by incorporating horns and piano into the music. Most notably, this will be the trumpet, because trumpets, kind of like harmonicas, but not to the same degree, were, were used in the Civil War. In, in the case of trumpets, they're usually used in marching, so you have them at the front of, you know, like the band that would lead your... Because back in time, <laughs> back a long time ago, we thought it pertinent to have bands in front of the army to kind of march... With the, with the with the with the army to have a marching tune, so you'd have like a a boy, a usually a very young boy, playing drums, somebody playing a horn, and just leading leading the way. But because these were used um, after the war, they kind of just leached out into the general public. And since people got used to them in that capacity, they became sort of naturally ingrained into the soundscape of music in this area. But Laura, doesn't Chicago blues also have horns? And you're right, man, they absolutely do. But there's even more. So where the Texasippi blues relies on a rather standard dialect rhythms uh, in most cases, the New Orleans blues scene takes from some of those different heritages and combines a Caribbean-inspired or based rhythms. So we can find a good example of the inspiration for those rhythms in another genre of music that was popular at the time called Calypso. Uh, Calypso is a genre of music which we will look at more in depth in the future, but just really generally for now, it was popular in the Caribbean, uh, as well as parts of South America, particularly Venezuela, Mexico, and of course New Orleans during this time. It is usually upbeat and relies on a lot of emphasizing of the offbeat, uh, and these are all things that we hear incorporated into New Orleans blues during the time. So when we hear blues from New Orleans, one of the things that we can usually use to tell the difference is merely just the upbeat tempo of things and slightly more rhythmically complex manner in which it existed. So, in fact, the blues in New Orleans was so fucking different, haha, that it actually started to become what we know as R&B, or Rhythm and Blues. And for a whole second, I'm just gonna, just for a second, before I play you the clip, you're gonna notice that it's gonna sound a lot different from the Rhythm and Blues that we understand today as Rhythm and Blues, and that's just because Rhythm and Blues is a very complicated history. But this is what it sounded like in New Orleans at this time. So, here you go. 
Well, I'm a single man, I really don't need a wife. Pick up you gals, yes, I'm a single man, I really don't need a wife. Yes, I'm gonna stay this way, cause ooh, what a wonderful life. Just a quick detour, uh, I fucking love, like, blues and jazz names, so the man I just played for you, his name's Roy Brown, um, this song, actually, it's, it's one of my favorites, I, it's, it's, I, like, it, I, I tend to paraphrase it, I'll walk around my apartment and just sing, like, I'm six feet tall and I really need a wife, cause, I mean, like, who doesn't, but, uh, anyways, but my favorite of these names might be, like, Guitar Slim Jr., but we also get, like, Fats Domino, who people probably know because he was really famous. He was also known as just Fats or the Fat Man, which is also great. Um, we, we got fucking Professor Longhair. And we got a dude that just goes by the name of Sugar Boy. Like, guys, like, what happened to nicknames like that? I want to rock. I, I want to walk around. When people see me coming at a distance, I want to walk around. And when people see me coming at a distance, they just point at me and go, Lord, here comes Swamp Papa. Like, that's living, man. I don't know what to tell you, but that's absolutely fucking living. Anyhow, <laughs> what you're going to notice, or maybe you didn't notice, but I'm going to tell you about, because that's my job, you're going to go back and notice is that blues, along with uh, jazz, uh, but we're going to get to that in another episode. So blues, uh, as it goes on, and it all starts sounding a lot like early rock and roll music, and that doesn't happen by coincidence. Also, you're probably going to notice that blues, at least as far as it goes for the Chicago variety and the New Orleans variety we talked about, also sound a hell of a lot just like jazz. And again, we're going to get more into the specifics later. But the thing I want to talk about with invention, whether it be music or physical things, or even sometimes schools of thought and ideas, is that things get kind of borrowed and changed and molded into something else by other people. Uh, even the phenomenon of something being invented in multiple different places at the same time is so common enough that it has a name, so it's called multiple discovery. So that happens all the time. Um, and this can be hard for us to kind of grapple with mentally, especially in North America. So generally people in North America prefer a more black and white, like this thing was developed at this time, this place by this person because definitive reason, definitive reason, definitive reason. But, uh, and that's just because we have this weird sense of individuality and crediting individuals with discovery as opposed to like a group or the society itself, which is probably more accurately what we should do. Um, but this this means that in our endless want to categorize and systematize and eyes all these things, particularly things like music and art, it gets sort of difficult to discern what is what and why and how. So, of course, we've already seen this with spirituals and gospel, like, they kind of blended the lines at a few times, but now we're going to see it with, you know, blues, jazz, and early rock. And I wanted to bring it up sooner than later, because especially as we move into more modern North American genres, and particularly genres from various other places throughout the world, we're going we're gonna to see a lot more. So I wanted to bring this up now, before we go into any, other f any further in the podcast, because as we get into more modern genres, and... Maybe even with this episode, I imagine there's gonna get. I'm I'm probably gonna get like some hate mail from elitists who are gonna smash their foreheads on the keyboard in absolute blind fucking dismay and rage, accusing me of putting wrong labels on on songs and stuff. But I wanted to let you guys know that like categorizing things as genres is hard because it is because things aren't black and white. It's it's not like every jazz song is gonna be a hundred percent the definition of jazz. That's not how that works. That's not how creative endeavors work in general. But yeah, the thing is, though, like most art, our definitions in life, things are salient. So just because music fits in one genre doesn't mean it only fits within that genre. In the case of Rhythm and Blues, uh, that song that I played earlier by Roy Brown, uh, Mighty Mighty Man, um, while there's definitely a Rhythm and Blues song, uh, it's also going to sound to a lot of people uh, like a rock and roll song, like a very early rock and roll song. And that's all right, because... Um, you know, music doesn't have to rigidly fit into one genre. Uh, we give things genre titles or group things into genres to help more easily understand their histories and identify other things that sound like it. That's, 
That's kind of how it works, but all music is going to have variation, and in the case of rhythm and blues, a style of blues that very much informs early rock, you're going to have crossroads like that. So instead of getting defensive, uh, maybe take some time to think of how cool it is that we have, you know, music that exists on an ever-evolving spectrum. One of my favorite things in music is music that crosses genre boundaries, so like symphonic metal, it's opera and metal at the same time, or like, you know, folk ska music, you get like like Russian-based ska music, which is just really, really fun, you know? These things have a chance to enrich our lives, and I would definitely maybe sit and think and take the time to think how these things have enriched your lives, or how they could enrich your lives, because it's, it's just cool, man. Music's just cool, man. Cross-genre stuff is just cool, man, so... Don't get your panties in a knot. But yeah, so that's that's pretty much it. That's it for this week's podcast. Um, I hope you've heard something new. Uh, I hope you heard something that you like. If you haven't, there's always next time where we're actually going to do something a little different. We're going to talk this. We're going to take a break and uh, talk about the spectral that is the minstrel show. So not technically a genre of music, but uh, a cultural phenomenon that people need to know about, which I'm going to subtitle right now. Why we don't wear blackface. <laughs> Because uh, it's important. Uh, in the meantime, though, if one of y'all would like to suggest a topic, I would love nothing more than to answer your musical questions or talk about topics that interest you guys. And uh, you can always feel free to uh, let me know about them. Uh, drop me a line at justamusicpodcast at gmail.com. But that's all for now. So I hope you guys have, have, a good, have a good day. Have a good life. Have a good afternoon, morning. Bye. <laughs>